0: Hey, folks, and welcome to this week's podcast. Our guest this week is Bruce Dedrick of the band The Free Design. In the background, we are hearing Tony Matola's version of Kites Are Fun, perhaps the biggest uh, hit from The Free Design. This is Tony's version from 1968, his album called Warm, Wild, and Wonderful. It is credited to Tony Matola with The Groovies, but The Groovies are actually The Free Design. Coming very close to duplicating uh, their background vocal track on their version of the song, which came out in '67. I guess it's their biggest hit, their best-known song. Tony Mattola's guitar tone on this is kind of mind-blowingly good. And I was talking about this with a friend who said, you know, you could take your uh, take the same guitar and the same amp and your hands, and it just wouldn't sound the same. You know, there's something about the person very evident in this guitar tone, and I think that's true. Tony's son, incidentally, Tommy, would go on to be the head of some giant record company during the kind of bulbous record company days, and marry and divorce Mariah Carey. But his dad, Tony, was just an amazing New York City session man, as so many great session men played on these free design sessions. So I've been curious about this band a long time. Chris, uh, the youngest brother and the... The leader of the band passed away quite a while ago, but uh, I reached out to his brother Bruce Dedrick, who lives in Pennsylvania now, and uh, he was more than happy to talk about his experience with the band, the history of the band, and uh, some of the answers were really surprising. So they made seven albums and uh, never had a huge hit, never really broke through, And then in the 90s, they had a huge renaissance. So it's a a really, really interesting story. All incredibly talented, all great singers, unique songs, great musicians, great recordings. So I hope you enjoy this. It is me and Bruce Dedrick of The Free Design. All right, there is The Free Design. And Bruce Dedrick joins us on the phone. Good morning, Bruce. How are you?
1: I'm good. Good morning.
0: Good morning. Okay, it's such a, you know, we've been listening to your music all morning, and there's just something amazing about hearing people sing together. Uh, I know that you're still performing today. I mean, you know what I'm talking about? There's just something about singing that is really connects you to music. You agree? Yes, I do. You guys, your brother Chris... Sandy and later your sister Ellen, and I think your other sister as well. Later, were in this amazing singing group. Your dad was a well known arranger. You guys grew up in Delavan in upstate New York, very small town. Tell me, what was it like growing up in that? I mean, it's a really small town,
1: right? Yeah, I think there was six hundred people population at that time. I don't know what it is now. And what was it like? Well, we were uh, we were brought up on a, up the hill from Delavan about two miles, and it was all farmland. Uh, I actually worked my teen years on the farm for my uncle and my cousin, and uh, we had our own animals, and uh, we played sports, and we did music. You know, it was pretty typical. We had a good time, uh, you know, in the country playing uh, outdoor sports and doing playing in uh, community bands, and, of course, we played through high school, and we did some singing at that time.
0: Your dad was a real well-known arranger and musician and music educator. Your uncle was a musician. I'm guessing there was a lot of music exposure growing up.
1: Yeah. As a matter of fact, uh, my brother Jason, my younger brother Jason just finished a book about my father. It's called uh, our Dedrick pioneer and jazz education. And it's sort of, I mean, if you get a hold of that book, you can get it on Amazon, get a full history of his amazing life and uh, his accomplishments. Uh, He was, stricken with polio in 1944, as was I. He was in a wheelchair for the rest of his life. I actually recovered and, you know, played sports up until, oh, my 40s. They had this post-polio syndrome, which comes back to haunt you after you've had it. And I I deal with that nowadays. But my father was in a wheelchair from age 28, and uh, the man accomplished so many things, Hmm. so much. Yeah, yeah. That's called Art Dedrick Pioneer. And jazz education.
0: And folks can find it on Amazon. When you guys were growing up, the music of the Free Design is so sophisticated in some ways, but it also kind of melds with what was happening in in pop music. So like the idea that you guys are out working on farms and playing sports and stuff is not the idea that was in my head. So it's, it's super interesting. Were you guys listening to the radio? Were you listening to the same records your high school friends were? Were you buying 45s when you were a young teenager?
1: Yeah, the, the Buffalo Station was WKBW with all the pop hits. And of course, the age range from my sister down to uh, my younger sister, Ellen, you know, was a pretty good span. So, you know, we, we listened to different pop stuff as we grew up through, through high school and everything. But, you know, Simon and Garfunkel, Peter, Paul and Mary, that sort of thing, 1960s.
0: Did your dad introduce like a classical and a jazz thing as well? Or where did that come from?
1: we started singing folk music, you know, basic folk music. I guess this is about 19, maybe 1963, 1964, emulating put Peter, Paul and Mary and that sort of thing. And we sort of, I don't know. We sort of, uh, evolved from there. My brother, Chris, of course, wonderful musician, arranger, composer, you know, he arranged most of the vocal stuff and composed a lot of, uh, the original songs. And, uh, uh, he studied arranging with my father and it sort of evolved from there into you know what what you hear. Were you guys locked in
0: vocally from the start? Was the blend natural?
1: It seemed so, yes. Yeah, we just sort of sounded good all right from the start.
0: So after high school were was it in your head that you guys would be a professional recording act or what was your plan after high school? Ha! <laughs>
1: Well, no, it wasn't, it wasn't right away. First of all, Chris was four years younger than me and Ellen was six years younger. So I moved to New York city, started studying the bass and started playing guitar. And I was doing a little of this, a little of that club dates. And of course we all played instruments. I played the trombone primarily, but as a teacher, I, you know, later on learned to, to play all the instruments, but, uh, I think after about four years, when Chris graduated from high school, and my sister Sandy moved down, I moved down to uh, New York, and she moved down to New York, and then Chris sort of followed. And we sort of started getting together, singing folk music, and that's that's kind of how it started. We sang in the, you know Greenwich Village and just you know sort of open mic kind of things, free freebies.
0: When you moved to New York City, I assume it was the mid-60s, what were your impressions of the New York City music scene at that time? Were, was it competitive? Were you welcomed? Was there culture shock coming from Delavan? Well, you
1: know, I didn't... The big culture shock for me was uh, the language. I came to New York, you know, and I was playing ball with guys in the schoolyard and everything, and everybody was saying, boy, you... You know you have an accent you live upstate. I said, no, you have an accent, <laughs> but we got used to that right away. but musically, you know my uncle Rusty lived I lived near where he was, and I was taking bass lessons and then i I picked up the guitar and I found that uh, uh, you know I played trombone on a gig and uh, they have they used to have uh, like the rock section of a of a wedding or a, or a catered affair. So the band would play, you know, the swing music and then the rock guy would get up and play a couple of rock songs, which is, you know, kind of how I got started doing that. So I had my guitar with me and I'd get up and sing a uh, bad, bad, Leroy Brown, whatever, you know, a couple of rock songs. Interesting. So
0: Chris moves down to the city cause he's younger than you. And I read that you guys made a demo and two weeks after, you recorded the demo. You were offered several deals from record labels. Uh, first of all, was the idea of the demo specifically to shop around to record companies?
1: Yeah, and my dad had a few connections, you know, that he could, it could at least get heard. And he helped in that respect. But that was the idea, yeah.
0: Yeah. So you ended up signing to Project 3, owned by Enoch Like, Do you remember who any of the other offers were from?
1: Ah. Uh, I don't, you know, I don't have a good memory of that. I, I remember speaking to and, uh, interviewing with Terry Cashman and, uh, I don't know if that company, you know, he was the one that did talk in baseball and, uh, Cashman, Pistelli and West were, you know, fairly happening at that time. And I don't remember if, if that company offered us, but I remember we did a few, you know, a few interviews. You know, we were young and, uh, you know, very, when I say unsophisticated, I mean very unsophisticated, (laughs) you know, at that time. Sure.
0: Uh, Well, let's talk about Enoch Light and his label. He's a super interesting guy. He was a musician. He had a history of really pushing innovation in the music recording field, and his companies always sort of had this uh, sheen of high fidelity. That was kind of their calling card at a time when people were, you know, buying huge stereo systems and that sort of interest was exploding in hi-fi he released a lot of interesting records mostly released what i think we would call now easy listening music so the choice to go with enoch light and his company who sort of had less experience with the top 40 style music is it's an interesting choice uh was the upside of that creative freedom what was the upside
1: i i think that's probably a big factor yeah creative freedom because he like like you said he was uh not into that area as, as much, and I think he wanted to utilize, you know, the, the voices and Chris's arrangements and some of the, you know, some of the original songs and, uh, and see what happens. You know, he would make a lot of suggestions, you know, you ought, you ought to have a little more tinkling stuff here, maybe an oboe solo here, you know, he, he would mm. make suggestions, but it was, he gave us a lot of freedom, that's for sure. And, of course, they they foot, they foot the bill, and he was uh, a pioneer in a 24-track system. You know, before that, it was like four-track, six-track, eight-track, and we did our recording at A&R Studios with Phil Ramone. And, uh, of course, he was a big name. He, he recorded Peter, Paul, and Marion. So we had some pretty sophisticated recording techniques, and also he hired the best musicians for the yeah. studio dates.
0: You know, he goes back to, like, the 30s. The guy was had such a huge, long career. He He's often credited with the co-producing of free design. Do you think that's a fair credit for
1: his contributions? I think so. I, th- I think so, yeah. I think he's got to have some of the, you know, a good portion of the credit. And, of course, record companies foot the bill, and then if nothing happens, you know, they're stuck with it. And if something happens, then they get, you know, they get paid as you know, be- before the artists get paid, you know, so. Yeah, sure. So he, you know, he he had a big investment in our, we did, I think, five, six albums with him. And I don't think he, at the time, I don't think he made very much money from it. That's probably true. For, so for your first album, Kites Are Fun, you're
0: in A&R Recorders, as you say, and Phil Ramone, who... End up being a huge producer and made a lot of really good sounding records. His name is on a lot of good sounding records. Have I got this right? That your ages probably within the like twenty to twenty four year old range. Is that right? Yep. That's super super young. Uh, you said you guys were naive. How did how did you adjust, or were you guys just so professional that it was not a big adjustment?
1: Well, like I said, we're unsophisticated, and I don't think we were very professional in mm. the beginning. You know. So, I I mean, we adjusted, but uh, I think we get, became more professional as we went along.
0: That's very interesting because the results are so sparklingly good. Uh, and there's some real heavyweight musicians there. The New York, like you said, Enoch hired really the best of the best. And it's, you know, guys like Paul Griffin and Tommy Matole, uh, uh they're heavy guys. What was their reaction, the studio guys, when you guys walked in there, when they saw the charts, when they heard you sing? Were they bowled over by your singing? Were they respectful of the arrangements? Or were they kind of blasé, just all in a day's work?
1: Well, you know, there's a bit of that, you know, because these guys do sessions all the time, yeah, or did at the time. but. We always got the feeling that they very much appreciated our sound and everything. As musicians, they thought it was good stuff.
0: Hmm. Yeah, I I mean, I would imagine that for musicians as talented as them, they were sort of being under-challenged on a lot of sessions. So these ones had a lot of time signature changes and a lot of interesting harmonies and stuff. So I would imagine it, it was more interesting to them. But yeah, that's how I imagine. So how long to record the first LP?
1: I don't know. I mean, it's not like what you hear nowadays where people spend like weeks in the studio. I mean, it was, we might've done it in, I don't know, six or eight sessions, you know, two songs at a time or something like that. So really quickly, I would say compared to what, what you hear about rock groups and everything, how much time they spend, you know, we did it pretty quickly. And I think, I know Enoch, Light wanted, you know, he had everything ready to go and uh, musicians lined up, the arrangements sort of designed to get us in and out without spending millions of dollars, you know what I'm saying?
0: Yeah, sure. I guess when it's all on paper, it's, it's easier. Um, were the vocals recorded at the same time as the music or were the vocals overdubbed later?
1: There was a little bit of each. There were times when everybody played together, which is unheard of nowadays, you know. But the, the, we were in a booth and the band musicians were you know out in the area and there were times when we recorded the vocal and uh, of course we're all on different tracks and everything but you know at times we did it all at the same time uh, there are the times we would overdub the vocals afterwards gotcha
0: am i right that the vocal parts were all written down on sheet music same as the instruments
1: yeah the uh the vocals and like i said uh, my brother chris of course is an amazing arranger and uh, we've you know, we might have contributed to some of the vocal arrangements, but uh, we had it all worked out and rehearsed ahead of time. You know, we had our our parts to sing, arranged parts, and uh, we went go in and sing
0: I would imagine that, like, I would assume you would meet in somebody's apartment and sit together with a guitar or piano and 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 practice the parts. Was there a little bit of like mind blowing for you when you went into the studio and then heard all the instruments playing? the whole arrangement?
1: Not, not so much. We were sort of prepared for that.
0: Hmm. Uh, what you and your siblings do is definitely a rare thing, but you guys make it sound easy. But is it hard to do to, to do such close harmony and to, to have to you know, when, when two people sing together, you can almost sing any note but when four people sing together, one person's even a little bit out and it becomes very obvious. Is it hard to do?
1: Well, I know it's it sounds difficult, but uh, it seems like we sort of, you know, we sort of just, I won't say came naturally, but uh, I don't know, we all could sing in tune and, we, you know, we our voices blended and we worked it out. We rehearsed and rehearsed so that when we went into the studio, you know, there was no no glitches, no uh, having to re-record stuff. I mean, we, we had these vocal parts down and we went in.
0: One interesting thing is that I, I'm looking at the list of sidemen and there's... R and B guys like Chuck Rainey, and there's classical guys, and there's jazz guys, and they all work together really well. Is that on? Was that uh, that sort of mixture? Do you think done on purpose, or is was that just the state of New York session guys at that time?
1: I think that was the state of uh, the session guys. I mean, they they were used to going around to one date after another. I mean, at that time, that everything was. Live music, no synthesized stuff, really. You know, nowadays you synthesize a trumpet sound, you know. But uh, I think it was a a kind of uh, Enoch hiring the best musicians, and that's, you know, that's the mix that he came up with.
0: Yeah. Yeah. It's a super, super mix. Your brother, Chris, was the creative force and uh, he's a few years younger than you. Was there like sibling stuff with you guys? Was it hard to have a boss who's a brother or, or just even work with all your siblings? Because that can be tough sometimes. Was it tough for you guys?
1: Well, I don't think so. Uh, I mean, we respected his his ability for sure and enjoyed doing the music. Yeah, I don't think that was a big issue.
0: Good for you guys. So when Kites Are Fun comes out in 1967, what were the expectations from you guys, from the band, and from the record label? And then what was the reaction, you know, the reality versus the expectations?
1: (laughs) I don't think we had any, uh, you know, set expectations. And I don't know what the the record company's expectations were. We thought it was a pop kind kind of a hit. And uh, it did get a lot of airplay throughout the country not so much in new york but we did hear it in new york and it was you know when you hear your song on the radio it's kind of a kind of a bit of surprise but uh expectations i don't know we we, at that time i guess we would take whatever came you know we'd be happy with it
0: uh did, did you guys not sit in the recording studio maybe when you were mixing kites are fun and say you know this might be you know a top 40 song this might play well next to, you know, the Love and Spoonful and and whatever else was going on at the time?
1: Yeah, the Fifth Dimension was happening around that time, too.
0: Yeah, the association, you guys would have fit right
1: in, you know? Yeah, I think that as simple as that song was, it was probably, when I say simple, simplicity, straightforward, it was probably the most commercial of most everything else we did. And I think the difference between Maybe a, a group like the Fifth Dimension of the Association was, I think they were a bit more com- commercial, uh, more of a, I won't say commercial sound, but a, a commercial uh, appeal than our songs other than Kites Are fond. I think we were a little more, my brother was a little more, uh, I won't say jazz oriented, but uh, uh, it's hard to put into words. He, it was pretty serious you know, pretty serious stuff, and we're trying to get this incredible sound, and I'm just thinking that maybe what we lacked was a little bit of commerciality, which made some of these other groups more popular than we were. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, Often when I'm,
0: you know, I was reading all about you and reading liner notes and articles, and there's lots of information on the web about the history of the band, often you're described as sunshine pop and sort of baroque, those two things combined. Do you... Does that work
1: for you? Do you agree with that? Well, yeah, we've been labeled as sunshine pop, and uh, I've heard that. And, of course, Baroque. Yeah, my, you know, Baroque, uh, my brother's song, uh, Proper Ornaments, was kind of Baroque. And there was other stuff, you know, others, other songs that were represented in that vein. So,
0: you guys put out a second LP in 68. You put out this um, Now Sound of Christmas. It's sort of half a record, also in 68. It's quite a collectible record nowadays. You all did contribute to the writing, but as you say, Chris was sort of the main writer. Do you know what his uh, songwriting process was like? Because he's so prolific. Was he just writing all the time?
1: He, like you said, prolific, yes. And I think maybe not all the time, but he, after the free design, he. Had quite a career up in Canada writing for you know like Canadian Brass and won a couple of the uh, awards that are equivalent to, uh, to Emmys here in the States. Uh, wrote a lot of commercials, jingles, and stuff like that up in Canada. So he was, he was quite, quite a musician, quite a writer, quite an arranger.
0: And did you see him work? Did he just throw a song together quickly, or was it something that was teased out over a long time? Do you know?
1: A little of each. At times, there were, uh, let's say, themes or, you know, how like when a a composer writes a song about a woman or a childhood or, you know, sometimes there were subjects like that in his writing. And other times, uh, oh, he might have an idea and just expand on it. I think Paul Simon did a lot of that sort of thing.
0: The the records are a mix of covers and originals. Was that your idea? Was that the record label's idea? And who picked the cover songs?
1: Well... I know the uh, record company wanted not to have all original songs. So I'm sure that was part of their, you know, their agreement, their process. So we would include, you know, songs like we did, uh, that turtle song, happy together, a great song called I like the sunrise. Uh, I don't know if you listened to that. Boy, that's a great one. And we did a, a amazing Chris's arrangement of, uh, Eleanor Rigby with a cello, you know, stuff like that. So,
0: yeah, and Michelle and California Dream, and there's some real good ones.
1: Right, yeah, absolutely. I forget them sometimes.
0: <laughs> Let me remind folks that Bruce Dedrick is our guest of the band The Free Design. If, I know that you're on Facebook. Do you, do you have a website or some other way for folks to check in on, and see where you're playing?
1: Well, I, I, I put it on Facebook. Uh, we've, you know, My band now is uh, Three Horns, Three Rhythm, basically sax, trumpet, and trombone, piano, bass, and drums. And we have a wonderful female vocalist. Her name is uh, Christine Honders. And, of course, she and I sing a lot of stuff together. But uh, it's mostly, oh, dances and uh, concerts. Uh, we play in the park a lot, that sort of thing. We, we, we do quite a lot of, I would say, 50 events a year with that band, with my yeah, you- band.
0: You seem quite busy. Like I said, uh, just look up Bruce Dedrick on uh, Facebook and you can find what you're up to. So, third album, like we said, very prolific in 1969, Heaven and Earth. And I'm wondering about live gigs because uh, there are some live bonus tracks on some of the reissue CDs. How busy were you guys on the road back then?
1: I wouldn't say busy enough, <laughs> unfortunately. Uh, we did, you know, we did a concert here and there, but we. Never got to the point where we could schedule, you know, a tour and, and, you know, hit six cities in in three weeks or something like that. It's just, you know, the commercial appeal just wasn't there. You know, there were pockets of interest where, you know, we might go to, we went to Cutsdown, Pennsylvania and did a concert there. and, And then we did a concert in Atlanta and put nothing that you could string together where you could really make any money.
0: Hmm yeah it's interesting because I really didn't know. Uh, I know that you did play sometimes with orchestras, but it was mostly was it mostly just the siblings and a drummer or an extra musician or two, and was it a struggle transferring or rearranging those that kind of huge studio sound to something you could reproduce on the stage together
1: well the the vocal sound we could easily reproduce mm. in concert, which was the the main draw yeah yeah we had a um uh, my uncle Rusty. Of course, trumpet, trumpet player, he was our musical director. And there was a keyboard player. My sister Sandy played keyboard. And uh, Chris and I played guitar and bass. And uh, we would pick up a horn now and then. But we were able to produce the vocal sound. And with the keyboard, we came close, you know. Uh, were audiences' minds blown
0: seeing that in person, that kind of singing?
1: Well, you get the idea. There were There were times when people were going, wow, you know. But there were times. Uh, some of our appearances were with other groups, like I think we appeared with oh, God, the Hollies or the Happening. Maybe it was the Happenings, and uh, several several acts were like one of these presentations with three or four acts. And of course, our our sound was very different and very more sophisticated. So yeah, we did you know catch people's eye that way.
0: Gotcha. I know that you guys were on Merv Griffin and uh, Joe Franklin and Mike Douglas and Captain Kangaroo even. I was looking on YouTube and I see that there is a clip you can find of you guys on the Mike Douglas show. I think you're miming that song about your brother. Was it fun being on those television shows? And I think, am I right that Carson was a particularly
1: big fan? I don't know how much of a, a fan he was. I know Doc you know, the band leader, Doc Severinsen, mm-hmm. was was a Free Design fan. And I ah. think that sort of helped us get on that show.
0: That's interesting. That makes perfect sense. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What about Joe Franklin? He was such a New York uh, character.
1: Yeah, he was a neat guy. And it was a pleasure being on his show. And we, we got to, you know, do pretty much whatever song we wanted to at the time. I know we appeared with on Arthur Godfrey's uh, radio show. hmm I you know, he had, I I don't know if you remember Arthur Godfrey, but he had a a show, a radio show. He used to have a TV show, but we never were on that. But it was kind of a talk musical. He would talk for a while, and he would have guests on, and he would pick up his ukulele. And then, you know, we would sing a song and kind of kibitz with him a little bit. And we were on his show a few times, a couple of times.
0: In the message of the music of the Free Design is mostly very uplifting. Sometimes there are sort of religious implications there's sometimes anti-drug uh implications was this a sort of a discussed thing that or was it just did it just come out in chris's songwriting as he wrote the songs or was it something you guys all said hey let's try to present ourselves a certain way
1: oh there may be may have been some of that input and otherwise i imagine it was a lot of his his thinking chris's thinking uh-huh. i know there were a uh, Incidents that happened like my cousin got killed in Vietnam and that inspired one of the songs. There may have been a thing here and there that Chris picked up on that he that he wrote. And of course, we were all happy, you know, to make it sound good. You know, so it's uh, I can't really specify one way or the other on any particular song.
0: But it wasn't a, you guys didn't sit down and say, hey, let's, you know, be up with people or, you know, there was no no strategy to it. It was just whatever was was happening. Tell me about, you got a draft notice at a certain point. How'd you deal with that?
1: Well, I think part of it was, uh, I did go for a physical and, uh, you know, I had polio as a child. Hmm. And uh, even though I was able to get around pretty well and I played sports and everything, there were certain things I, I couldn't couldn't do physically. Like leap up and run, you know, from foxhole to foxhole. So I think that might've had something to do with it. Gotcha. For guys your
0: age, was that, you know, especially musicians, was that just kind of like a looming black cloud
1: over everybody's head? I think it probably was. I know, like I mentioned before, my cousin Pete, rather than get drafted, uh, he joined the army and he became a helicopter pilot and he got killed in uh, the Tet Offensive. Mm. Chris, my father pulled some strings and got Chris into the uh, air arranging for the airman of note, which is one of the connections we, he had and that one of the reasons we did that Christmas album with the airman of note. Right. So Chris, Chris was able to avoid, I think he, I can't remember if he, so I don't, I don't know if you called me. And I think he had, I think he had to do reserve duty, but I, I can't be sure on that. I know that he avoided, you know, regular duty.
0: Yeah. 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 Let's go to 1969. There's an Enoch Light and the Light Regrade album called Spaced
1: Out. Is that
0: you guys singing on that record? Do you remember?
1: I think we might have had a, a cut or two on that record. I know the record you're talking about. Yeah. It's a wild record. I mean,
0: I, I really, really love that record, but it, your sort of jazzy harmonies work so good in, uh, you know, it's kind of this idea of what futuristic music would sound like, sort of, and it it works real good. I'm curious, uh, let's talk about, you know, what it was like to earn a living from all of this around this time, you know, 1969, like for something like working on Spaced Out, did you just get paid union scale? You know, were you guys just scraping money together from these gigs? Were you getting royalties from the record company? How how were you guys putting food on the table?
1: Day jobs. Oh, okay. Wow. No, we didn't make... You know, um, people probably are amazed to hear the fact that we didn't really make any money, any big money. I mean, there was some commercial jingle stuff that we and we might have got as a as we did a jingle as the group free design. I think we might have gotten double scale. But when we did, I know, I know I did. a, I sang a lot of jingles and I I would just get scale and all that.
0: And what was scale back in 1969 or in that era, I have no, I, I
1: have no remembrance of that. <laughs> I have no
0: idea. It. It's, it's a long time ago. Uh, so, when the the seventies, you know, were dawning, could you feel the sixties energy ending? You know, am I imagining that there was a big change happening in the air, or, or was it happening?
1: You know, it's hard to remember back then, and uh, whether I had really deep thoughts on the subject. I I remember nineteen seventy was when Elton John did, came out with his first. And people were saying, No, Elton John is, you know, he's he's gonna last forever. And it turned out he did last forever, you know. Mm. As far as we were concerned, you know, I was very much into music and I was doing uh as the seventies progressed, and I'm trying to remember dates and all that. I mean I worked with a, a singer, Claudia, Bruce and Claudia, and we did we worked quite steadily, you know, mostly weekends and stuff, and and we both had other jobs. I don't remember what I was doing, but uh we certainly weren't, as as the free designer, as individual musicians, we certainly weren't making our whole living, you know, doing music. I think I, I started teaching private lessons around that time, too.
0: Gotcha. That makes perfect sense. So uh, Stars, Time, Bubbles, Love is your fourth album in 1970. Songs for Very Important People is sort of a kid's record, sort of also 1970, uh, your fifth record. And and eventually you leave. They put out a sixth record in uh, 1972 called One by One. Uh, Why did you leave the band at that point?
1: Well, you know, it's hard to put this into words, but I think, you know, I was developing as a, gaining more sophistication, writing and, and arranging and stuff. And, uh, I think everybody would agree at that time that Chris was sort of, you know, wanted to be in uh, in charge and my sisters kind of went along with that. And I, I sort of drifted away. I would say maybe creative differences, you know, to put it one way. Yeah. Were you guys still on good terms personally? Yeah. I mean, I, you know, we never had any fights or anything like that. I just sort of, I just sort of drifted away and, uh, he was, Uh, you know, he was in, uh, Washington. We, we were just not, you know, we used to get together and rehearse all the time. We just, that stuff wasn't happening really. You know, we would get together and uh, that last album, which I, you know, I liked making, we all enjoyed doing the singing and everything. That was great. But after that, it became less of a, 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 a joint effort and more of an individual effort. And, um, you know, I just, I just got away from it.
0: Yeah, fair enough. I mean, that's, it's quite, you guys had quite an output, uh, you know, with you and the band. Uh, they did end up making, uh, Chris moved to Canada, and then then uh, your sister moved to Canada. You, they end up making one more record in 1972 on a different label, and then breaking up. And you guys all went on to do different interesting things. And I'm very curious, there's like, uh, in the mid-90s, the, the band sort of starts to get rediscovered. I'm curious in that in-between time from like 1972 to the mid 90s was the free design in your thoughts was it in your life were you remembered for that by the public or were you just doing your other bands and your teaching and your stuff and the free design was kind of like in the rearview mirror?
1: Well, I don't <laughs> I don't remember. It's not like the Eagles when they broke up in 1978 <laughs> and they got back together and you know And they had their health freezes over to her and they made $8 billion. You know, know, I don't think anybody (laughs) even, I don't think anybody even remembered anything about the free design in in the Uh, nineties.
0: But so in that, in between time, it's not that that the, the free design was not part of your identity, Bruce.
1: No, no. And I don't think it was anybody else's either. When they moved to Canada, uh, Sandy and Chris and my younger sister, Stephanie, uh, they started this, Kind of a cult thing with a, a guy named Mills, and he, uh, they made some recordings with him, some some you know some wonderful singers and everything. The recording, the music wasn't my cup of tea, but Chris's arranging of the vocals and everything, and they did some, some records, and you know nothing that sold commercially. But I'm sure they were happy, you know, mm. get the satisfaction out of making music up there. You know, I was and I was doing my thing here. Did you say the word cult? yeah I think that I
0: think that fits it like oh, was it like a religious thing or like this is a part of the story I've never heard?
1: I don't want to get too deeply into it, but the, this guy mills was uh kind of a a guru, and you know I won't say they would drink kool-aid and you know commit suicide or anything but and I wouldn't say they worshiped him, but he did have a following, and uh music some of the people were singers, and music was a part of that gotcha. Okay, super
0: interesting. So in the mid-90s, the Free Design catalog got reissued in Japan, then a best of in Spain, and then lots of reissues. And nowadays, the whole catalog is reissued really nicely, lots of great liner notes, lots of great bonus tracks. And in 2000, this sort of momentum led to you guys recording a song for a Brian Wilson tribute uh, album called Caroline Now. What was it like getting back together almost 30 years after you had stepped away?
1: Well, my my experience with that was we did, uh, there was some interest from some German record company, and uh, we did another album, another CD. Oh, God, I can't even remember the name of it, but uh, I agreed to do it if I could have some of my songs. So. Oh, I
0: think that you're talking about Cosmic Peekaboo in 2001. Oh, yeah,
1: Cosmic Peekaboo, yeah. Yeah,
0: you've got some of the best songs on that one.
1: Yeah, so I've heard And, uh, it was, you know, I mean, I got a lot of, uh, feedback from different people about that. Anyhow, it was gratifying.
0: But you say, so I've heard, is it something you just sort of worked on? Like your song McCarron airports, one of my favorites on that record. Is this just something you worked on and then
1: kind of went back to your life? Well, McCarran airport was obviously, uh, referring to a trip out to Las Vegas and, uh, I guess a breakup and, uh, losing all my money and that sort of thing, flying home on my ticket. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I had written that song prior, obviously prior to that. And uh, that other song, uh, Springtime Came Today, was another one I really liked. There's a couple others. There was one that I wrote about my sister. You know, my sister Stephanie died of ALS like in 1997. She never actually recorded with, with us, but uh, she was a wonderful singer, wonderful, wonderful musician, so one of the songs is uh, sort of about that. Anyhow, I enjoyed doing that, that that album back in whenever it was, 2003 or 4 or something. That other album you referred to, I don't really remember too much about. The
0: the, the Brian Wilson one. Uh, your brother Chris passed away 2010, so there will be no more free design. Looking back uh, when you think about the work and, and the recordings and your time and the group's legacy, the way the group is remembered, you know, now in 2024, how do you feel?
1: I always think we put out something that was kind of special that not too many, you know, we had a vocal blend that not too many groups had. And uh, we certainly enjoyed making those records.
0: Yeah, I hope so, because I think there you, you do have uh, fans all across the, the age spectrum, you know, folks who were young when those records came out and folks who are young now and still uh, discovering them. Suppose you had not signed to Enoch Light's label. Suppose you had been signed to some more, a label more versed in putting out pop hit records. Do you think uh, things would have gone differently for you or do you think the music was really more nichey?
1: Uh, it's hard for me to say. I think maybe it would have gone more, might have gone differently. Yeah. Could Could have. I think that was one of our negative points was that we we were not commercially enough, you know when I think of jazz, I play in a jazz group on Thursday mornings every Thursday morning, I play with musicians who are incredible you know I'm getting into jazz more and more. I play the trombone and uh my my opinion on jazz is that because i I think that jazz requires greater musicianship than most any other genre uh in a lot of ways, but jazz is appeals to such a small audience simply because, you know, it's sometimes too sophisticated and sometimes, you know, a guy will take a solo for 10 minutes and people, you know, don't, (laughs) don't like to hear that or can't, you know, can't, don't have the patience or whatever. But as far as musicianship, boy, these guys can play. I think that might have a little bit of a a relationship to the free design. We were sophisticated musician musically, but maybe a little too sophisticated to be commercial enough to really, you know, to really happen. That's my thoughts.
0: Hmm. Interesting. But here we are, 55 years later, and people are still loving this music. So it must be special, right? I think so. Yeah, I mean, there's plenty of 55-year-old music people are not listening to now. So I want to play Kites Are Fun here to end things up. I read, interesting, I I hope this is true, that Chris was thinking about a girl whose initials were K-A-F, and that's what sort of was the spark to to write the song. It ended up charting, reached number 114 uh, on the charts. Is there anything else we need to know about the recording or uh, the legacy of this song, Bruce?
1: Well, I think that... Uh, I think you're right. And he, you know, we talked about it, uh, his girlfriend at the time was Kathy Ann Fabian and, uh, they were a beautiful couple and, uh, he saw the initials and of course, you know, as kids, we flew kites all the time. We had wide open fields. And, uh, so he sort of took that whole theme with those initials and that, that title and made a great song out of it. Yeah.
0: That's beautiful. Uh, thank you so much for visiting with us. And uh, folks can find you on Facebook and find the Free Designs Music everywhere.
1: Yeah, just Google it, YouTube it. You can, you know, you can, you know, it's all over. You can hear it if you want to hear it. And if you want to know more about our family and my father, it's our Dedrick, Pioneer in Jazz Education. Uh, Pioneer, I think that's the title, yeah, Pioneer in Jazz Education. That would be a good, a good read for a musician.
0: Yeah, I'll, I've put a link to that on the playlist, so folks can check out the playlist uh, for a link to 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 find that book. Uh, thank you so much, Bruce. Thank you, Michael. So it's
1: been a pleasure talking to you. are fun kids are fun See my kite It's green and white Laughing, Laughing in its, its distant,
0: distant flight. flight
1: All that's between us Is a little yellow string But we like each other More than anything And we run along together Through the field behind my house And the little drops of rain Caress her face and watch my boss And we'd like to be a zillion miles away From everyone Cause mom and dad and uncle Mein my kite, kind it's of fun. See my kite, kind of fun. See my, kind of fun. See my kind of...